Well, good to have everybody here. We, we are uh, in week two of our series called You Can't Say That in Church. And what we're doing in this series is taking on tough questions and objections, common questions and objections that people potentially have to faith, and, and specifically the Christian faith. And we are doing our best to give honest answers to those tough questions. And uh, here's the thing, if you've ever felt squelched, if you've ever felt silenced, if you've ever felt like you're, you couldn't voice a question or an opinion in church, and this has happened for many people, raise your hand if maybe you've ever felt like, I, that question I can't really ask, uh, I've never been able to really get this question answered, or maybe um, a religious person kind of shut me down and said, just believe, well, that is what we are trying to come against in this series, because truth is not intimidated by honest doubt and honest questions. Is that right? If something is true, then we can test it, we can, we can even probe into it, we can, we can even come against it, and what we'll find is that there will be something concrete there. And my belief and what I really know is that if you will push into Christianity even as a skeptic, open, turn those rocks over, do the work that you need to do to get those questions answered, what you will find is that there is something to the Christian faith. Uh, that it is actually true, that there is, it's true not just because someone believes it or because the Bible just says so, but it's true from the realm of science and history and from philosophy and so on and so forth. So that's what we're doing in this series, and nothing's off limits. And uh, now here's the disclaimer that I'll give every week, is that we can't cover every single topic uh, in this series, because there's a bunch of different things that are good questions, right? Um, and we also are not going to be able to plumb the depths of each topic in every message, even though I will do my best, but uh, that's not going to happen. So we have two avenues available, two things. One is if you go to joyeugene.com and there's a thing on the, on the front page there that says resources, and we have provided a resource page, and we're curating that week by week um, to, to make sure there's uh, relevant resources available to, to all of you for each message that comes out. So there's some general resources that were posted Last week, this week, you'll begin to see uh, specific resources for each series. And so there's going to be resources that will, will give you more info for, for any of you that want to delve in, whether you are a skeptic or a believer that want to delve in and find out more about each of these topics. So there's that at joyeugene.com. The second thing is that during the week, we are doing a podcast or a video podcast. I don't know what that's called. Is there a fancier way of saying it? A vlog. A vlog. Just kidding. I got like four minuscule laughs. If second service, please help me here. I, uh, we need like a laugh meter on the screen that goes up when, when it's good. You're like, tell better jokes. Okay. So we're doing that uh, podcast. And what, what that is, is that you can ask questions. Send an email to can't say that at joyeugene.com. Can't say that. And we will do our best to answer your questions. This week we had fun talking about Neanderthals. And since Kyle and I are Neanderthals, it was easy to answer from common experience. Well, uh, moving forward, today is an exciting day. It's an exciting day because today is Nerd Day. How many of you are nerds? Raise your hand, all the nerds. All right. Hey, you're self-identifying. This is awesome. Justin's like, don't, don't. I'm, I'm kind of a nerd, but I'm a nerd in denial, and I'll explain this. But how many of you are like, no, I'm a nerd. I'll own it. That's cool. That's cool. You know, nerds in like in our culture, being a nerd means you're probably going to be rich. You're going to own like Apple or Microsoft, something cool. So yeah, nerds, you know, self-identify. Well, we're talking about science today and asking the question, are faith and science incompatible? So today's nerd day. And, uh, you know, I'm in a battle with my wife, uh, not like in life, but over this issue of if I am a nerd. Because we were talking, we we're watching a Star Wars movie and she's like, who's that dude with the rocket pack? And I was like, oh, that's, that's Boba Fett. She's like, Boba Fett? I'm like, yeah, the bounty hunter. 
I want to sing that Dog the Bounty Hunter theme song so badly right now. Boba Fett, the bounty hunter. You know what I'm coming from with that? All right. Anyways, man, I love reality TV. Okay. So Boba Fett, I'm like, that's Boba Fett. And I grew up watching the third Star Wars movie, The Return of the Jedi. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching. That's good right there. Return of the Jedi. How many of you think that's the best Star Wars movie? Sorry, Empire Strikes Back. Other than Hoth, like, it's not good. Okay. So The Return of the Jedi. This is for nerds. You remember, it's for the nerds today. So she's like, you're a nerd because you know that. I'm like, that doesn't make me a nerd. So we've been in this battle of if I'm a nerd. Now, I do have to let you know, I did watch... No, I'm sorry, I did read the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy on my honeymoon. <laughs> That's pretty nerdy. Okay. Well, but I wanted to figure this out. Okay, if, if you're a nerd or if you maybe feel like I might be a nerd and you want to know, we need a test for this, right? So you've heard of the, like, you might be a redneck if. Well, we're going to do it. You might be a nerd if. If you are currently wearing a superhero-themed T-shirt... <laughs> Or if you own a Marvel or DC, like it's a superhero t-shirt, you are a nerd. Like that's, wear it, own it, be it. I'm a nerd. Um, I don't own one, just so you know. If you can name, I'm going to say 70%. If you can name 70% of the characters from Star Wars or Star Trek, where's my Trekkies at? Or if you can name, come on. Uh, if you can name like 60% of the characters from Lord of the Rings, which I can just go for days. I've read the Silmarillion. Hello. That's geeky right there. The Silmarillion is like the lore behind a fake book. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Okay. If you've ever watched the Sci-Fi Channel on purpose, not by accident, right? You, you, like, you actually navigated to the Sci-Fi Channel and watched a program that the Sci-Fi Channel made. You are a nerd. And so Bethany under that definition. We've done that, so we are both nerds. Love you, babe. But my defense of why I'm not a nerd is I have never watched any Doctor Who. Never. Doctor Who. And people that watch Doctor Who, we know that is the, the nerdiest thing of all. Okay, we're moving on. Moving on. So today we're asking this question. Are faith and science incompatible? Are faith and science incompatible? You know, this is a big deal for a lot of people because and we talked about this last week, for a lot of people, they say, look, if I can't put my hands on it, if I can't test it uh, with empirical data, if I don't have any evidence, I'm not going to believe. So what's the problem? Why is this question come up? Why is it such a, a deep question and, a, and, a, and an important one to talk about? Well, for many people, faith and science, and specifically the Christian faith and science, are two categories that do not overlap at all. They occupy distinct and separate spaces. And for many people, faith is about blind belief and turning your brain off. I just believe. I just turn on my Christian music and get my precious moments uh, figurines on the thing. And I light a scented candle and I go into la-la land and I meet with Jesus. Come on, somebody. And they say there's this category of science is the is where truth is at and it's where evidence is at. And then we have faith, which is just la-la land and believing in the Easter bunny and Santa Claus and all that. And why would a thinking person believe this way? These are categories that do not align, that do not overlap. I read this quote last week. I'll read it again. Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist from Oxford University, he said, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And this is a perspective that I'm encountering even right now as we advertise for this, this series. And people on Facebook begin to interact and they're like, why would you, why need to believe in an imaginary friend? 
And, and, and this is a real perspective, and that's not a bad question, if, if that's what you think. But see, it's based on a flawed premise. This supposed battle between faith and between science is a false narrative. And it, it, it's, not, it's not accurate in the realm of, in reality. I want to read you some quotes from some people that are way smarter than me. John Lennox is a professor at Oxford. He's a Christian. And he says, indeed, one of my main reasons for believing in God is that we can do science. The mathematical intelligibility of nature is evidence for a rational spirit behind the universe. If you want to sound really smart, just memorize that and tell people, well, the, uh, the mathematical intelligibility of the universe is evidence for a rational spirit behind it. He says, if we take the atheist view, then rationality dissolves. We're going to talk more about this in a second, but going on. Alvin Plantiga of Notre Dame, the, the greatest living philosopher, thought to be the greatest living philosopher. He's actually a Christian. He said, if Dawkins is right that we are the product of mindless, unguided, natural processes, then he has given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive faculties and therefore inevitably to doubt the validity of any belief they produce, including his own science and his atheism. His biology and his belief in naturalism would therefore appear to be at war with each other in a conflict that has nothing at all to do with God. We talked about this concept last week, that if, if the story that evolutionary naturalism tells about reality is true, that means that the universe is random, that it came into existence or, or it has always been, and that there's no mind behind the universe, then really what we call thoughts and thinking is just chemical reactions happening inside of our brain, and we shouldn't trust them to describe reality. Therefore, if you're using your thoughts and philosophy and reason and argumentation to say God does not exist, you have no basis on that, because in that universe, there would be no reason. Not just reasons uh, as categories, but no reason at all, no rationality, no critical thinking. Even atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel agrees with this premise. He says evolutionary naturalism implies that we shouldn't take any of our convictions seriously, including the scientific world picture on which evolutionary naturalism itself depends. So we ask this question, are faith and science incompatible? No, because it's a flawed understanding of the reality of both of these disciplines. See, I would like today as a Christian, as a person who has faith in God and has placed my faith in a creator, in an intelligent designer behind the universe, not just because I live in la-la land. Maybe I do live in la-la land, but that's not why I believe in God. I live in la-la land because I have three kids. You know what I'm saying? So little sleep, so many messes. But no, I believe in God based on evidence from science. And as a Christian, I think that even today as we talk about this, I think we'll even do a service to the scientific discipline and elevate it back to a perspective that it occupied once in society. You see, early scientists practiced their science because they believed that there was an intelligibility to be found woven into the fabric of the universe. In the same way that when you and I open a book we, we understand that if there is information that's written in there, we can, we can interact with that, that information, we can take it in and we can learn from it because we, and we believe there was an author that actually intended to communicate something. I, my friend and I went to a bookstore yesterday and we're pulling books off the shelf and we're looking into them and we're, we're not thinking, well, I sure hope this one has something intelligible in it. No, we understand that how it works is that when there's intelligence behind something, that information will proceed from it. And so for the early scientists, like Isaac Newton, he said this, science is thinking God's thoughts after he does. They realized that they were following in the footsteps of an intelligent designer, therefore they would find intelligibility within the universe. 
The very idea of science is predicated on belief in a rational universe, which hinges upon acceptance of intelligence behind the universe, a rational and logical mind. Are you awake? Have you had enough coffee today? All right. So faith and science are complementary, not contradictory. Let me say that again. Faith and science are complementary, not contradictory. You see, science can help us solve puzzles, but it cannot unravel mysteries. I'm actually preaching one of the songs I wrote. If, if you are familiar that I write music and, and do music, if you go on Spotify, I did an album called I Want the Inside Out, and the very first song on that album is called Puzzles and Mysteries, and it's about this topic. You're like, you wrote a song about science? I did. I did. I'm a nerd. <laughs> Boba Fett inspired me. Okay. Science can help us solve puzzles, but it cannot unravel mysteries. Well, what does that mean? You see, science can tell us how, but it can't tell us why. You can search and you can discover how something works. I figured it all out. This goes here, this goes here, but you can't tell, you can't tell us why. So we've got to be careful when we talk about faith versus science. And I'm I, like from uh, Nacho Libre, I don't believe in God. I only believe in the science. We have to be careful because we don't want to elevate. If we elevate science to a too high of a position, elevate the scope that it can explain and what it can provide, we end up breaking what it can tell us, which is how, but it can't tell us why. Science can tell us how gravity works, but it can't tell us why gravity works. Did you know this? This blew my mind. I was, I was uh, in school. I think I might have been in college at this point. And no, I didn't learn about gravity in college. I learned it earlier. Homeschooled. Okay. But, but I, I learned about gravity. And I remember reading something that said, well, here's how gravity works. And, and here's the principles. And it's about mass. And, and ma- greater mass creates a greater gravitational pull. Uh, so on and so forth, and I'm learning all about how gravity works. And then the, the writer in the textbook said, but we don't really know why. In other words, we can observe these laws of science taking place. We, we know that gravity works. Like if you jump out of your seat, I'm trying to explain this to my kids. If you jump off the table, you will fall. They're like, gravity! And then we have to go to the hospital. It's like amazing. Gravity equals the emergency room for us and our family. We know how it works, but we don't know why. You see, science recognizes the laws at work. It recognizes the processes, the systems, the the rationality, but it can't tell you where those systems came from. It's incapable of doing that. Can't tell us why, but it can tell us how. C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, which is an excellent resource on this topic, he said, in science, we've been reading only the notes to a poem. In Christianity, we find the poem itself. In other words, science is telling us how the universe works, but it's not telling us why. It's telling us that the universe is, but it's not telling us where the universe came from. Science tells us how, but not why. John Lennox gives an illustration. He says, let us imagine that Aunt Matilda has made a beautiful cake. Come on, somebody, cake. Jesus, okay. Imagine that Aunt Matilda has made a beautiful cake, and we take it along to be analyzed by a group of the world's top scientists. The nutrition scientist will tell us about the number of calories in the cake and its nutritional effect. We rebuke those nutritional scientists in Jesus' name. Yeah. The biochemist will inform us about the structure of proteins and fats, etc., in the cake. The physicist will be able to analyze the cake in terms of fundamental particles, and the mathematicians will no doubt offer us a set of elegant equations to describe the behavior of those particles. And all the non-nerds say, boring. Let's eat it. He says, we've certainly been given a description of how the cake was made and how its various ingredients relate to each other. But suppose I now ask the assembled group of experts a final question. Why was the cake made? 
The grin on Aunt Matilda's face shows she knows the answer, for she made it for a purpose. But all the scientists in the world will not be able to answer the question. And it is no insult to their discipline to state their incapacity to answer it. Their disciplines cannot answer the why questions connected with the purpose for which the cake was made. In fact, the only way we shall ever get an answer is if Aunt Matilda reveals it to us. But if she does not disclose the answer to us, the plain fact is that no amount of scientific analysis will enlighten us. What's he saying here? He's saying in this very simple illustration, which I think we can all grasp very easily, that the answer to the question why must come from the person that made the cake. And so the problem is when we elevate science to this level of explanatory scope to say science will become the arbiter of all truth, empirical methodology will reveal to us all of the deep questions that come from the human heart. Eventually, we, we, we're, we're losing something here. We're not just wrecking, we're not just going to get a wrong answer. We're breaking the apparatus that science even is. Because science is valuable, but not for the why questions. It's valuable for the how questions. You see, what's happened in our day and age, and the reason why there's this false narrative, this false dichotomy between faith and science, is that scientists have left the domain of the empirical sciences and the answering of the how questions and have actually become philosophers where they've said, I found some evidence on the how questions, and so now I, as a scientist, will tell all of us the why questions. Oh, yeah, I found out that, that this is how gravity works, so therefore there's no God. What? Well, I think maybe things came from other things, and they developed over billions and billions of years, uh, and so therefore there's no God. Well, hold on a second. Did you realize, do you know that a lot of the, the scientific theories and, and provisional ideas that we get from science, they might even be good ideas, but they never invalidate belief in God. In fact, all they do is point us back to needing an answer to that why question. You see, what is in need when the scientists come around and it's valuable and they assess the cake and they look at it and this is how fat you're gonna get if you eat it and you're gonna die if you eat this because you're over, you know, all this kind of stuff. They can tell us all these how, how answers. But what is needed then is revelation to answer the why questions. And that is where faith steps in and says, here is the infinite personal God that comes to reveal himself both through nature as a part and so on and so forth to produce information that we cannot derive just by answering the how questions. John Lennox says, God and science are not alternative explanations. They're not against each other. They're not fighting back and forth. God is the agent who designed and upholds the universe. Science tells us how, again, the universe works and about the laws that govern its behavior. God no more conflicts with science as an explanation for the universe than Henry Ford conflicts with the laws of the internal combustion engine as an explanation for the motor car. The existence of mechanisms and laws is not an argument for the absence of an agent who set those laws and mechanisms in place. On the contrary, their very sophistication down to the fine-tuning of the universe is evidence for the creator's genius. So it's, in very, it's very valuable for us, whether you are a skeptic or whether you are a believer, a Christ follower, or somewhere in between on a journey, we need to understand very clearly what is the definition of science that we should operate with and understand what are the limits to the scope of what science can explain. You see, Science ceases to be a useful or logically coherent idea if we make it the ultimate test of truth. And I find this to be fascinating, and I get in uh, discussions with, with people, and I call them discussions because they could turn into arguments, but that's not the point when we're trying to help people find Jesus, right? 
You know, like even if you're here today and you're like, man, this guy's a jerk. He's just trying to prove every, the, all the other side wrong. No, actually the other side has a lot of good thoughts. And, and I think it's valuable for us to have dialogue and discussion. But I get in discussions with people about this and they'll say things like, well, you can't just string words together and call that evidence. But that's a sentence that you just strung together and you're saying against my sentence. Does that make sense? Like we, we're all coming from somewhere. And it's very important that we get definitions right, that we find the, the limits. And, and, they, and it, they'll say, well, evidence is what we can taste and touch and see and, and hear. It, it's empirical evidence. And you're like, well, yeah, well, that is, some, that is a form of evidence, but it, it can't give us the full scope of the answer. So therefore, we have to look for all the disciplines. And I want you to think about this. Let's say a loved one uh, of yours is, is unfortunately um, murdered in, in a case. And, and there's a crime scene and... and the police come in and they're like, well, we don't really have DNA. We don't have forensic evidence. We don't have um, physical evidence. But we did see some, someone, there was an eyewitness, and they said that someone ran out of the house and they have this description of this individual. And, and they're like, but, you know, those are just words that they said that they saw someone. Those are just words. It's not evidence. You're like, uh, could you follow up on that, please? How many of you would want them to pursue every angle? You see, when it's personal, you want them to like look into it. Well, use philosophy and use reason and use deductive logic and use all these kinds of things. But if we said, no, only what we can like empirically understand, that's the ultimate test of truth, we're missing out. So let's take a moment here and define science. Real science, real science, had to go there, okay. I think that was on the Sci-Fi Channel, that show. Isn't a category or a worldview Real science is not a category or a worldview, even though that's how most people use the word or use this idea of science. So what's interesting is when we use science this way as the ultimate test of truth, like I can't believe in anything unless science uh, reveals it to me or proves it to me, then it actually becomes what's known as scientism, which is actually a belief system or a philosophy or even a religion. That it actually becomes, you know, it's interesting that this like false dichotomy is that, well, faith is blind and science is not. But when you, when you make science the ultimate test of truth, you end up putting all your faith in science yeah. blindly. So it actually completely flips around. And the statement, all truth must be confirmed through empirical methods is actually self-defeating because it doesn't pass its own test. Think about this. All truth must be confirmed through empirical methods, okay? Confirm that statement through empirical methods. I cannot, sir. <laughs> Correct. This is a problem, isn't it? That if we make something that is too limited, the ultimate test of truth, it defeats itself. Game over. Like it's an illogical premise. And that's what scientism does. Now let's talk about actual science, real science. Real science is valuable. Real science is a methodology. How many of you are familiar with the scientific method? And it can be explained in five phases. Observation, right? I see something, and then questioning, hypothesis, experiment, and conclusion. So I make an observation about something, then I ask a question, and then I form a hypothesis. I think this is what's going to happen if this happens, and then you conduct this experiment, and you observe it, and you see and then you make a conclusion. So we can do this with um, football, because this is valuable for all the guys. We're gonna do a scientific experiment, guys, about how much football we can watch without our wives getting mad. So if a guy sits down and he's like, you know, I love college football. Um, this is for a friend, it's not for me. 
Um, a guy sits down, he's like, I love football. I want to see how much football I can watch without, you know, making my wife mad at me. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm making an observation that she tends to get angry when I watch too much. I'm going to ask this question, how much football can I watch without making her mad? I'm going to form a hypothesis. You know, I think I can watch 12 hours of football without making her mad. How many guys think this is a good hypothesis? <laughs> this is bad science. Okay. So then I'll conduct my experiment. I will watch said 12 hours of football. I will make my observation, my, my analyze the data. She got mad at me after the 10th hour. So my conclusion, I can watch nine hours of football. That's good science right there. That is the scientific method. Very, very poorly explained. Very, very poorly demonstrated. But that is the scientific method. This idea of observation, of questioning, hypothesis, experiment, conclusion. That is a great thing. It's a great thing. Science is an incredible discipline. You know, I think in some, in some cases, Christians, they, they feel like they have to invalidate science as a methodology. You don't. Science is a beautiful thing. I think science is, again, built on, predicated on the existence of God and a ration, his creation that is so wondrous that we get to discover and, and pull apart and figure out how things are working. But can it give us the full, accurate picture of the universe? No, it cannot. So both of these disciplines working together are what give us a fuller picture. Not just these two, but but the fullness of, of knowledge, pulling in from faith and the Christian faith and revelation and the Bible and all these different ideas. This is why we need to talk about these things. See, if somebody says, well, uh, it has to be science and only what science can show me and that's it, then, the, then it, it, it's a broken argument. And hopefully that's been shown to you that if you make science itself the ultimate test of truth, it becomes a self-refuting thing. So what I wanna do today though is give you some arguments for the Christian faith from science from science. And this is for both skeptics and believers. If you are a skeptic, like I said last week, here's some great areas that if you can look into these things and you can blow these arguments up, then man, you can be like, I win. God doesn't exist. Let's go home and watch football on Sundays, right? Correct? And if you're a believer, this hopefully will strengthen your faith. But for both, these are the lines of evidence. These are the lines of argumentation that you want to follow along with. So let's do this. Somebody say, let's go. Let's go. Arguments for faith from Science. Number one, the argument from coherence, from coherence. And we've talked about this a little bit today already. But basically, for me, one of the strongest evidences of the Christian faith and belief in God specifically is that science as a methodology only makes sense in light of God's existence because the scientific method presupposes rational intelligibility, uniformity, and order within the universe. If naturalism, which is the belief that all there is and was and ever will be is the cosmos, as Carl Sagan said, that naturalism is this closed system. All we have is the material universe. That's it. It's just matter and energy. There's nothing else. There's no supernatural. There's no intervention. It's just the natural world. If that were true, if that were the actual state of the world, the actual state of the universe, then the universe would be absurd and we wouldn't know it. Now, follow me here for just a second. Why are we able to coherently ask questions, test them, observe them, follow evidence and make conclusions, reason, and even the idea that the universe would give us a uniform answer? Where do, why, do, why do you think that? Why, why for, for an atheist, is, are the laws of science laws and not just the random happenstances of science? You know, if I was a logical atheist, every time I walked out of my front door, I'd be like, is gravity work today? Oh man, sweet. 
This is awesome. If I were a logical atheist, then I would, I would always wonder if when I push the gas pedal in my car, if the car wasn't just going to go 50 miles an hour right away. Because of the laws of physics and the laws of gravity and the laws of the atmosphere and, and the life-permitting fine-tuning of the universe, all these things, why, do they, why are they uniform? Why do they work? Come on. How can we, why do we get this idea? It's not coherent in a random, absurd universe that is the byproduct of chance. Now, I know there's arguments against this, and we'll lean into those and, hey, ask some questions, because let's come at me, bro. <laughs> but, but it's a great starting point to look at this, that where do we see this coherence coming from? The universe, if naturalism were true, would be absurd, and we wouldn't know it. You know, faith in God, as I said already, it has spurred scientific pursuit throughout history. As Isaac Newton said, scientists are simply thinking God's thoughts after him. Why do we expect to and actually find order in the material universe? It's because the rational intelligibility of the, the data that we see, the evidence, it points to an intelligent creator, an intelligence behind the universe. The underlying premise of naturalism which is self-refuting. They say there's nothing beyond the material universe, but you can't prove that. You can't test it or verify that without appealing to some standard beyond the material universe. You see, the very problem of the universe is, is a very sticky problem because it requires a leap of faith for every single person, a presuppositional choice to say, I choose to accept that God exists as a first fact of the universe, a priori, before the evidence, and then reason backwards from that and follow the evidence backwards and forwards, or I choose to believe in a self-creating universe or a universe that has always been. And it takes just as much faith either way. The problem is one of the, or the, the good thing is that the evidence that we see leads us to, to find that the conclusion to believe in God is actually an evidentially, logically sound First principle to accept. So the coherence of the universe for me is powerful evidence for God's existence and powerful evidence for the Christian faith following from God's existence. And this idea of scientism that all truth must be decided by empirical methods is self-refuting and it's not even scientific because what it leads you to do is not be able to accept and trust in the laws of the universe. Are you following with me? And if the opposite side of the coin is true, you find it a completely incoherent argument. Number two, argument from science for God's existence. Complexity. Complexity. The first one is coherence. Second argument is complexity. The universe, we know this from science, is incredibly, incredibly, I can't say enough, infinitesimally, and on a macro level, it's fine-tuned. It is just tuned. It's like Kyle's abs. I mean, just fine-tuned, chiseled. No, just kidding. I've never seen his abs, so I can't verify this. This is not scientific. Just, he'll show you his abs after church, anyone that wants to see. We'll put it on the podcast, too. Just kidding. The universe is fine-tuned. It's dialed in. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of factors that must be perfectly balanced to allow life in the universe Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons.org, he's a creation scientist, he lists 154 unique factors that allow Earth to support advanced life forms. You will find a tremendous mountain of evidence that looks at the complexity and fine-tuning of the universe. From a macro level down to a micro level, I want to go to the micro level for just a second, looking just at what we, what we call DNA, right? DNA. Dr. Stephen, Stephen C. Meyer, he says, We now know that what runs the show in biology is what we call digital information or digital code. This was first discovered by James Watson and Francis Crick. 
1957, Crick had an insight which he called the sequence hypothesis. And it was the idea that along the spine of the DNA molecule, there were four chemicals that functioned just like alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters in a machine code. The DNA molecule is literally encoding information into alphabetic or digital form. And that's a hugely significant discovery because what we know from experience is that information always comes from an intelligence. Whether we're talking about hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or a headline in a newspaper, if we trace information back to its source, we always come to a mind, not a material process. So the discovery that DNA codes information in a digital form points decisively back to a prior intelligence. Now, this is a massively important thing to understand here, that when we find information scientifically from experience, we always expect and find behind it intelligence. Dr. Stephen Meyer uses the example of the Rosetta Stone, which I've actually seen in the British Museum of Natural History, and it was amazing. We like walk in, there's like a ticket counter and like popcorn stand or something, and it was like Rosetta Stone right there. We're like, they have this like in the lobby. What amazing stuff is in the back if this is like in the front lobby? And there's the Rosetta Stone. And if you know what the Rosetta Stone is, it has multiple languages inscribed. And that's how we were able to uh, translate Egyptian hieroglyphics or begin to do that process. Now, the archaeologists that uncovered the Rosetta Stone, do you know what they didn't do? They didn't like knock the sand off and brush it away and be like, man, the wind and erosion created this amazing three languages on here. And yet that's what, we, that's what the idea of that the information in the universe just came from random material processes says. You see, when we find information, we realize there was intelligence. That's an intelligent assumption. It's not intelligent to assume otherwise. It breaks the scientific method. It breaks science as an idea completely. Complexity points to something behind the universe. Information always leads to intelligence. So the point of this argument is just this, that the universe is far too complex to be an accident. And as science progresses, every single day we find out how wonderfully complex the universe is. It's more than we can even imagine. We're going to post some things on the resource page, some videos and things that you can watch and just see some of the just mountains of evidence that support this idea of complexity. Last one, and then we'll go eat something good. Uh, last one, number three, the argument from cause. So we have the argument from coherence the argument from complexity, and the argument from cause. The argument from cause is this idea that God is the best explanation for the cause of the universe. And you might say, well, why is this important? Well, it's very important because for a long, long, long time, those that wished to deny the existence of God had to accept that the universe was eternal, right? That it just always had existed. And if they could say, well, the universe has always existed, then there didn't need to be a creator. You could just get rid of that. And then at that point, evolutionary theory becomes an explainer for the complexity of life, or at least a try, a, a good, maybe a, a decent try, but, but a theory nonetheless for the explanation of the complexity and, and diversity of life. The problem is, is that scientists came along and realized, oh, snap, actually the universe did begin. You call it the Big Bang. And a lot of times you'll hear Christians deride the Big Bang. Don't do that. Let me tell you why. The Big Bang is one of the most powerful scientific discoveries that leads us to look God right in the face and realize that he was there at the beginning. Because what was discovered was this, that the universe came into existence in a single moment. Space and time, matter and energy began to exist. And what we know from science is that anything that begins to exist has a cause. 
And therefore, if, if, if the universe had a cause, we have to look at that and say, what would that cause be like? Okay? Science leads us to, to look for a cause. There's multiple avenues in the laws of science that lead us to have evidence for us to understand that the universe had a beginning. The first one I'll give to you is the second law of thermodynamics, which is known as the law of increasing entropy. Where are my nerds at? Come on, I said entropy. Hello. The law of increasing entropy, which says energy always becomes less useful, right? That, that the universe is, is suffering what we know as heat death, that Energy always starts in a, in a hot state or a useful state, and as it goes on in time, it becomes increasingly less useful. It becomes more chaotic. And so if the universe were eternal, it would have already run out of usable energy, right? We have a paradox here. Like, we know that the universe isn't out of energy, but if it had been going forever, all the way back, 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 then and matter cannot be created or destroyed according to the first law of thermodynamics, then we have to say, okay, the universe is not eternal, right? That's practicing science. And you could imagine this in the, in the, illustrated by the idea of an hourglass. If you were to walk into an office and on this beautiful mahogany desk is this hourglass sitting there and you come in and you see there's about half of the sand in the top and half the sand in the bottom, what do you derive from this observation? At some point, all the sand was in the top and some of the sand is now in the bottom and eventually all the sand will be in the bottom. And that's what the laws of thermodynamics tell us about the universe, that we are somewhere in that process of sand going from the top to the bottom. Law of increasing entropy. The second thing that helps us to understand this is the expansion of the universe measured in the red shift, which was how they discovered the Big Bang. Is they realized that looking at stars, light was, there was a shift and you could actually test the current rate of expansion of the universe. The current rate. We don't know if it always expanded at the same rate. We just don't know that. Not really a way to know that. But we do know that currently the universe is expanding at a particular rate, and it allows us to know that if something is expanding, that at one point, if it had been expanding forever, it would have already been fully expanded, right? People are like, yeah, I've had maternity pants. I know what that's like, fully. That was a terrible joke. Yeah, sorry. Terrible joke. I liked it. <clears throat> but the universe, if it had always been expanding, it would have already all the way been expanded. But it's not because we can measure the rate of expansion. So where does this point us to? If you can measure it, then you know that it had a start and a stop point. Thus, the universe not eternal, it had a cause. And if the universe had a cause, we have to lean in and say, where did it come from? And what's fascinating about this is even thousands of years ago, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, he came up with this idea called the unmoved mover. This, is, this guy was like stunningly brilliant. He goes, man, if the universe is a succession of finite physical causes like dominoes falling, cause and effect, cause and effect, finite physical causes, then at some point, the universe must have had an uncaused cause. But it couldn't be a physical cause because physical things belong to space and time. They're a part of this finite reality. It couldn't be a finite cause because time came into existence too. So it has to be an infinite cause. It has to be a non-physical cause. It has to be an unmoved mover. And so even just using his brain and what he could observe from nature, Aristotle realized there's an unmoved mover. Somewhere behind the universe is a non-physical, non-finite, so an infinite spirit that is intelligent. And you're like, well, you're just talking about God. Well, actually, I'm talking about Greek philosophy. But see, the, the coherence, the complexity, the cause of the universe, it leads us to start to realize, man, there's a shape here. 
And it kind of looks like this guy that we call God. Ah, but Christianity, yeah, faith and science, those aren't compatible. What? Follow the money. Follow the evidence like Aristotle did. How, what, what do we need at the beginning? We need an infinite. People say, well, if the universe had a cause and everything that needs a cause had a cause, then why doesn't God need a cause? Because God isn't bound by the laws of science. Because he's not finite. He's infinite. Because he's not physical, he's non-physical. He's spirit, which is what he says. You see, God, even in scriptures, as he reveals himself, never claims to be something other than what he is, which is an infinite personal spirit. He himself uncaused, but is the cause of all things. And you go, well, that's not scientific. Actually, it's highly scientific because it's an explanation for the universe that we can observe. The cause behind the universe. You go, well, what do atheists say? Well, Bertrand Russell, one of the most famous atheists ever, he said, I should just, I should say that the universe is just there and that's all. He called it a brute fact. Basically, the idea of a brute fact is it just is. Well, I can't explain it, but it just is. Is that scientific? You see, one side actually leads you to ask questions and expect answers. The other side says, just accept what it is and make your own decisions and choices. See, here's where we land this, and we'll get ready to, to move forward today. The question of faith and science, are faith and science incompatible? It's not purely intellectual. It is a moral question. You see, it's about you and me and our heart and what the ramifications are. See, if there's a God and he exists, then that means something to me and my decisions and my actions and my choices and how I live my life. And it's easier to say, well, no, God's unscientific and therefore I'm a person of science, so I can do what I want. I don't need God in my life. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I don't need any of this kind of apparatus or a crutch or whatever someone wants to say. But see, that ceases to be a scientific argument. And now we are in the realm of choice and philosophy and personhood. This question concerns the ramifications of his existence. The real battle is not between faith and science. It is between independence and surrender. The real battle is that if you will admit that the science actually points us to an infinite personal God at the beginning of the universe, then what you have to do is fall to your knees before and say, I am just a person and I don't know all the answers, but someone does and that person deserves my attention. That person deserves my focus, my, my thinking. And ultimately, the beautiful thing behind all of this is that behind all this is not just a God who's tinkering with levers and dials to make this universe, is that the Christian story about reality is that there's this God who freaking loves you so much. Come on, somebody. I chose my words carefully. I didn't say that out of hand. God loves you so much. The amazing thing about the answer to the why question is that this God that made everything and set these laws of science and even created nerds, and you're the ones that like this message, like, where are my nerds at? That God made you that way and wired you that way, and God left these crumbs, these breadcrumbs to follow back. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish of ideas of what he was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Faith and science 
are not contradictory. They are complementary. And actually, when you follow the evidence of science, it leads you back to face this question of God. And I want to encourage every one of you, whether you are a believer or a skeptic or whoever, to go on this journey for yourself and follow the breadcrumbs, follow the evidence, and see the God that's waiting on the other side of your search.